welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lakestar, one of the leading European venture capital firms. Lakestar's mission is to find, fund, and grow disruptive businesses that are enabled by technology and founded by exceptional entrepreneurs in Europe and beyond. Founded by Klaus Amels, the team's early investments include Skype, Spotify, Facebook, and Airbnb. And since raising its first fund in 2012, Lakestar now manages an aggregated volume of over 2.8 billion euros across their early and growth stage funds. The team actively advises and supports portfolio companies in marketing, recruitment, technology, product development, and regulatory insight, accompanying founders from seed to early stage, growth stage, or exit. Lakestar's games and media team has made 18 investments, including 1047 Games, Zebedee, Modulate, and Trace. If you're interested in learning more or getting in contact with the Lakestar team, simply go to lakestar.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. With me, two wonderful guests, the ever-lively Aaron Bush and Mario Stefanidis. I, you know, it's it's too many too many vowels and too many letters for me. Uh, if you want to correct me, feel Close free enough. to. Good. Awesome. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Excited to be here. Yeah, cool. doing great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we got a lot of a lot of news to cover, but uh, hopefully fairly briefly, a lot of updates, including everyone's favorite topic. Hopefully this is the season finale of the Unity Saga. We'll see, I guess, whether it continues from here, but we've got an update on that uh, with some compromises potentially. Uh, Jim Ryan with a retirement, unfortunately, from Sony. Uh, Capcom with some interesting comments coming out of the president. Phil Spencer also with some unearthed comments from the, the uh, gift that keeps on giving, the trial that likes to leak things. Uh, and then Epic, unfortunately, was a bad news, which we'll get into. And then just some some good discussion on some some winners and losers in the market and uh, some hidden gems to pay attention to. So why don't we just uh, start right off the bat with uh, Unity, of course, the topic everyone's waiting to hear about. Yeah, so you're right. The saga is kind of never ending, and I'm not sure we'll have an end to it this month or even the next month. But um, essentially, the stock is down over 20% since the announcement was first made two weeks ago, and it kind of just keeps going down. It seems like the trade-off for monetization just fell completely flat on its face because now almost everything was backpedaled and they lost goodwill from their community. Um, just some examples that have recently hit the news and it keeps coming in, but um, the first official Unity group ever created, Boston Unity Group, kind of an organization of developers around the Boston area that assembled in 2010, uh, dissolved on Tuesday. They're rebranding re themselves to like the Boston Development Group or something. So they're basically going to start exploring uh, other engines uh, out of protest for Unity's uh, changes and loss of trust. Um, again, even though they rolled back most of these changes, it seems like some of the damage is irreparable. And then you had an indie developer, uh, Neognosis, um, cite Shattered Trust as the reason 
why their Switch port of their combat racing game, uh, Ballistic NG, was canceled. Um, the developer basically said, you know, if they can change the terms of service on us at any time, we don't feel comfortable creating a game with this software because it can essentially cripple us financially if, you know, they just wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day. Um, and then another indie game, Vampire Survivors, the dev kind of came out and said, you know, I used this for um, my game. And that game was pretty big. I, I think there's even a Wikipedia article about it. But he's like, I'll never use Unity again. Um, and uh, a lot of these issues were addressed by the Create uh, segment president. And Create is their engine business. Uh, Mark Whitten, uh, in a fireside chat last Friday, um, he was saying Unity is trying to build a sustainable business that scales with users' revenue, somewhat similar to what uh, Unreal Engine does with their revenue share model. But, you know, this begs the question, and it's evident through Unity's financials that they're having a profitability problem. But it begs the question, why didn't they just introduce a revenue sharing agreement in the first place? Like now they have a two and a half percent cap on two and a half percent revenue cap on uh, revenues above uh, one million. But before it was a runtime per install model, which infuriated everyone. Um, and he said that the per install model was lower fee in the aggregate than revenue sharing. I, I mean, I, I just don't buy that for one second. Uh, and then only games, the only games that are affected now have made more than a million uh, or more in annual revenue and have one million or more quote unquote engagement engagements with new users. The problem with this metric is that it's again vague and there was no clarity as to what an engagement is. It's the same problem with installs, essentially. With installs, you can have someone uninstalling and reinstalling the game, installing the game on multiple devices. You know, if the developer is being charged every single time for that, especially in the era of ballooning install sizes, where people are constantly reinstalling games uh, on Steam um, to manage their hardware space, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like a well-thought-out system. Um, and I guess my question for you guys is, do you think it would make a difference um, if Unity said in the TOS that um, these types of changes can never be made again? And uh, so you can't be like kind of rug pulled mid development. Like, is there anything they could do at this point at all to build back trust? <laughs> I don't think they would put that in their TOS. The, the, any company would probably want to maintain flexibility because you never know how the world is going to change. Um, I mean, I think the the way they build back trust is just a long road. Um, and um, not saying it, it can't be done. I mean, I think that like this change in and of itself is a very positive step. And a lot of people who were bothered, they're just gonna be like, okay, this is fine <laughs> and move on. <laughs> like the the not every like the loud voices that you hear is still probably like a loud vocal minority of the people going crazy compared to a more silent majority that will just kind of roll with it. Um, so I think it's a good step, but the question for me is just more like, it was just very poorly executed and, you know, thought out in some ways. And so to me, it's more like an organizational and leadership question of like, well, are they going to continue? <laughs> are they going to execute better in the future? Are they going to make better decisions next time? But, um, and that kind of starts at the top as we kind of talked about in the last round table. Um, so so I don't know. Um, but yeah, it definitely hurt trust with developers. But, you know, as you mentioned, Mario, with the stock falling down, even for people who investors who aren't as steeped in like the inner workings of gaming and how all these individual game developers are thinking, everyone from the outside, too, is just like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> and so it's going to take time for everyone 
to have that trust built back up. And for developers, it'll just have to show like commitment to being better for them in the ways they want to be served. And for investors, it's just going to have to come from results, but it just takes time. I mean, it sounds like obviously the people who have a game in development, right, that aren't willing to cancel it, which is probably going to be most of them. Well, they're just like, well, at least let's wrap up this project in it, right? Because now we're not going to be hit super hard, hopefully. Um, but then it's just the question of like future projects, right? Where you go, okay, like they fix this now, but th- like you don't have much faith in them to make good decisions in the future, right? Because they clearly aren't capable of making really great ones, uh, at least recently. And so you got to imagine like people that are, mm, I don't know, like, I mean, I guess the point about the TOS thing was just like, th- if they could change it, at any point to include retroactive stuff, to include anything from now on, to include people who are already mid-development. Like if you're 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 a hobbyist or whatever and you could drop the the engine at any time, no big deal. Whatever, you just drop the engine if you don't like it. But that's the the problem was you're doing this to people that can't do that mid thing, right? Where it's like it needs to be at least version locked. And, and I'm glad they went with that because that was like at least the reasonable compromise to say, hey, we're gonna version lock this where it's like you don't agree to the new TOS unless you update, which seems like the most reasonable compromise to say like, hey, like if we're not doing any more work for you essentially by shipping new updates, then you don't have to agree new terms of service. Like that seems like a fair compromise. I, I would just hope that they would at least do something that would enable some level of trust in terms of future TOS changes, maybe not a lock-in, but saying like, hey, you know, if we change them, they'll only be on versions, meaning like maybe a minor version, maybe a major version, but some something to say that that version lock uh, to some extent still applies if they want to carve out an exception for it. That's like a specific exception. I think that would be the like at least the transparent way to do it, right? I mean, they already had the issue where like, I don't know if we covered this before, where they like somehow uh, got rid of the repo for uh, the TOS changes uh, because it was getting too low of views just before all this happened. And so they just, they have all this kind of sketchy coincidental behavior that that really undermines a lot of the trust. And it's like, oh, if they fix it now, but it's like, it, but it feels like one of those kind of things like the government will do where they like go to pass a bad law and then backpedal and then pass pretty much the same thing, slightly compromised under a different name. And you worry about that with Unity now. It's like they haven't shown a pattern of great decisions, especially the reputation of the, the current CEO is not good in general. So, I mean, at least there, there's going to be some people, right, who who gave Godot a peek and like maybe they'll finish their current project, Unity, but they'll be like, let me consider Godot or something else for the next project. Uh, or at least, you know, maybe Unreal. It's it's definitely only going to help the other companies. But it does beg the question why they didn't just basically copy what Unreal was doing and adjust the numbers to what they thought was reasonable. Maybe, I mean, ideally better than Unreal's numbers so they could be competitive. But obviously they got to make money, but that's like a fair way to do it where everyone understands, okay, I use Unreal or I use Unity and here's the numbers. Like no confusion, no magic, mystical install metrics that somehow can't actually reasonably be tracked. Like, I don't know. They just seem like the reasonable compromise. And the fact that they're making some reasonable decisions is good. But the fact that they don't seem capable of doing that consistently, like personally, when, when I go to develop stuff, I'm definitely going to be looking at uh, Godot or probably Unreal because really Unreal is just amazing at this point, like the quality uh, and what you get for that. But uh, yeah, like... I definitely lost a lot of trust personally in, in Unity in terms of like just their capacity to make the right decisions doesn't bode well, even at a technical level, uh, because they could make poor decisions around the technical stuff too that just creeps in. And they have had history occasionally doing that, even under the better leadership. So I don't know. I guess that's my two cents on it, but uh, I think we're going to kind of have to see like over a long period of time. It's so like Aaron said, like, you know, it might be, you know, a, a period of time before we even see 
any effect from this because it's going to be the silent people that do or don't, not necessarily like the vocal people. So probably probably won't they probably won't feel this except for maybe in their stock in the short term. So they they probably won't even be that like that butthurt. They'll move on from this like a week and just be like, all right, that's good enough. Let's move on to regular business now. But we'll see. Uh, we we do have some bad news though around. Uh, I mean, I guess bad news around Sony and a retirement. Jim Ryan. Yeah, so Jim Ryan, um, who's headed Sony Interactive Entertainment for years, been at the company since 1994, which is just crazy, three decades, um, is calling it quits. He's retiring. Um, The reason given for his retirement was he's from the UK. He wants to spend more time with his family and his house and and his house there. Um, You know, I guess the man is just homesick. Uh, But the timing is questionable given some of the tumult resulting from Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, you know, Sony has clearly lost their case. They, along with the FTC, failed to persuade uh, the courts that uh, the acquisition would be uh, anti-competitive. Um, in the meantime, Hiroki Totoki, who has a million titles, he's the president, CFO, COO, and representative executive officer, which is a position unique to Japanese companies of Sony Group. And now he'll also be the CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment um, until uh, a successor is found. Um, I think the timeline they gave was about a year to find someone. Um, it's curious whether they'll hi- hire uh, internally or externally um, as well. Um, and I, I guess there's something else to note is um, the last fiscal quarter we had from Sony, um, the 90 days ending June 30th, um, PlayStation sales were below expectations. The company said they had to start discounting and offering promotions, uh, particularly in the West um, for a PlayStation. So, you know, on the one hand, pretty much everything points to this being a planned retirement. But on the other hand, the timing is just a bit suspect. You know, there's certainly people, you know, working into their 60s um, in these companies. And yeah, I mean, that that's basically just it. Nice. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> my view is maybe a little less critical. Um, I mean, for one, like what an epic run by by this dude. Um, Jim Ryan, 30 years at Sony, you know, and made it all the way up to the very top and put Sony in like the dominant position in the industry. Like Microsoft, Microsoft won that FTC suit in part because Sony is so like is the big dog now and in part that's because of um jim ryan's leadership and ensuring especially this recent console generation um just knocked it out of the park um so i mean major props to him um also i think that when you're a ceo of like a massive entity like this there never is a good time (laughs) to step aside right there's always something going on um something in your strategy that needs fixing something in the market that's a new threat um what have you and so um, I think now when Sony is on top is probably as good of a time as any after all the lawsuits, uh, the regulatory stuff is done. And honestly, when you have to deal with that kind of stuff anyways, your job probably is not as fun <laughs> anymore, I would guess. Um, but but yeah, I'm curious to see who will um, take over. Um, Hiroki has his hands more than full. Uh, they're they're overflowing uh, with, with what's on his his plate. So yeah, I'm curious who will step up to, to lead Sony next. But my guess is the company's course is pretty set. And so whoever whoever steps in, I doubt is really going to shake things up in a big way. It's going to be more um, 
continuation. And even though um, I think in the West, Sony has done some like bundling stuff, which is, I think, kind of what you mean with the discount. But I think that's more like all that bundling is zero marginal cost and just ensures that they're taking as much market share as they can. And the demand is still, um, you know, the long term demand is still pretty good. So, yeah, I'm curious what's next, but I don't think this is anything I'm too concerned about. Maybe there's more to the story, but uh, what an epic run. Yeah, I mean, the man is definitely um, a legend. I, I I just thought it was, I guess, from Sony's perspective as a business from the top down, it felt like they put a lot of emphasis on the court case. Now, like, I definitely didn't think it was, like, as life or death as um, they were making it seem. But, you know, just from the business itself, at least from the testimony, may- maybe it's natural for testimony to be, like, that emotional or, like, sweeping just so they can get their point across, but it just seemed like they made it seem like uh, if Microsoft went through with the acquisition, like it would be the end of their business, which again is an over-dramatization given they've won the console wars like handily, like 2X, 2.5X outsold Xbox over the last 15, 20 years um, to the point where Phil Spencer even said, you know, we lost the console wars. Um, And yeah, Jim Ryan, when he joined um, Sony, it was when the PlayStation project was still under wraps, um, PS1 came out December 1994. He joined earlier in 94. So he was literally there from the very beginning. Um, and yeah, you can't discount his run. It's just incredible what the guy has done. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a conspiracy theorist in me, but I feel like whenever I hear health or family as the reason, uh, especially in politics, it just it it usually screams dishonorable discharge, essentially. <laughs> But it, it, I think it's probably most likely he was planning to retire and maybe they did it a little earlier. Like, cause the thing that makes me think that is that they didn't already have kind of a successor teed up. And when you've already been at the company that long, I feel like if you're going to plan your retirement, you, you give yourself a decent like wind down runway, but I mean, it could be wrong. Like everyone does business differently. Like could be nothing there at all. I just feel like there's like that. That's what it seems like to me is like, Hey, I'm going to retire. And they were like, you know what? Now's a good time for you to step out, Jim. And he's just like, all right, well, I guess I'll peace out then go spend time with my family. Like he was probably fine with it, but it was probably slightly, you know, time differently, as you said, kind of coincidentally with some other things going on, but who knows? As long as the company ends up in good hands though, that's, that's really what matters, right? It's like, as long as whoever takes over does a good job. I mean, it sounds like we've got like an interim one at least uh, who's experienced, but it does, it does kind of a, Strike me as curious that like someone who's been there that long hadn't at least groomed uh, someone to potentially be a candidate. Like it makes it made me think of like Steve Jobs, like grooming Tim Cook for so long, right? To make sure that the company was in good hands. So it is, uh, I mean, maybe just disappointing that he didn't already have someone kind of like that he was mentoring to take over the role because he's got like such a breadth of experience that he's bringing to the job that his mentoring would have, I think, made a huge difference in the successor coming in and actually really understanding like the storied history of PlayStation's involvement there and what's worked and what hasn't. Uh, hopefully there's enough people around whoever comes in to kind of fill that gap. But I guess we'll see, right? Like it's one of those things where uh, Sony's been doing well enough that uh, as long as they can kind of keep it going and don't lose to like other weird plays like Game Pass and stuff, then I think they'll be fine. We also have some other uh, leaders doing all kinds of stuff here at these companies. Capcom president, uh, you know, I'm not even trying to pronounce his name. I'm terrible at pronouncing Japanese names. Uh, he says game prices are too low, something I've, I'm sure we've heard plenty of times before, but it, it was kind of funny coming out of them as they, uh, you know, doing quite well as a company in terms of games and also, oddly enough, released their game at a, I guess, a discount technically compared to most of the games now that are at the $70 mark. It came out at $60. Uh, Mortal Kombat 1 came out at 70 and 
I don't know, just kind of interesting. What do you guys think in terms of uh, what this means or, you know, whether you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's a super interesting discussion. Um, before the podcast, I actually went ahead and looked at nominal and inflation adjusted video game prices, like since video games were a thing in uh, 1985. Now, in 1985, a video game cost $40. And in 1990, 50, 1996, 60, and then you had a long period where video games went back to the $50 price point. And like, that's kind of when I grew up um, remembering that price point. Um, and then $60 from 2005, like all the way up until recently, we're at $70. When you look at an inflation adjusted perspective, video game prices have actually plummeted. Um, they peaked at 130 during the SNES era. Um, and, you know, now uh, are, are what they are. Um, so I agree with him in principle. Like, I do think video game prices are too low, but only if you look a la carte. Like, you have to consider the fact that all, all these video games now have monetization within them. They all have, like, digital deluxe editions that boosts the base price even further. Um, you know, just look at Starfield, for example. Like, there's $70 for the base game, but there's all these tiers above that you can uh, also purchase. Um so I guess like in principle, if there weren't all of these um, additions layered on top of the base game, you know, he would be right. But, you know, ARPU is just way higher um, than what the base um, game's price uh, would imply. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say game prices have risen over time. Um, I mean, what Mario said, inflation adjusted, that's true, but nominally they have and they will continue to. Also, this is one of those things where I'm like, okay, if you think it, then do it, right? Like Capcom has been, like, hasn't raised their prices from 60 to 70 for recent games. I'm like, well, if you think they should be, then just do it. It'd be like everyone else. I don't know what you're complaining about. Um, I mean, there there is like the, you know, of course, like the big picture thought of like, oh, or should games be more like $100 or something? And I'm sure in time they will be. But um, uh, I think obviously there are consumer expectations and everyone kind of has to move in sync to some degree. Um, and so if you want to unlock more revenue, it's not just like the base price, right? It's like, how else are you going to build around it? Um, or make the game special. Or sure, if you want to try testing higher base prices, maybe you can. It'll just... People won't like you for it, but if they they can already raise their prices, $10 would be in a totally fine position. So stop talking about it and just do it is my view. Yeah. And, and I mean, video game prices also kind of follow a step function. Like they're not, they're not going to go to $63, right? Like the jump between 50 and 60 was 20%. And then the jump between 60 and 70 is 17%. And those are like really high jumps actually, but I, I think the reassuring thing for the industry is, you know, Starfield sold like 10 million units in, in like just a few weeks um, at the $70 price point. Um, it's clear that uh, demand, you know, is uh, on the more uh, inelastic side. So, you know, good for good for publishers and developers, I guess. When I did some some research on the numbers too, this this is the part that kind of concerned me about the the just the conversation overall when it comes to like players kind of rejecting price raises is if you look at so yeah sixty dollars you know just for inflation that's like one hundred twenty right now right um, from like if you're looking at nineteen ninety five numbers to now um, it's a pretty big jump uh, but obviously like we're creeping up towards that slowly the big problem for me isn't necessarily the retail price so much as the production cost combined with that so the production cost when I was looking at like a PlayStation One game around ninety five was about a million dollars or so which is two million adjusted for inflation. Um, 
production budgets now, like 60 million, I feel like is like cheap for a triple A game now. And you're like getting up to 200 plus million for a lot of these bigger, bigger games like Cyberpunk adjusted for just the, the three year difference it was like over 300 million uh, to make it. And so like these games like production budget wise, and that's not counting ma- uh, marketing or anything else, right? That's just production budget. Uh, is just so over. And we, we've had that conversation before, but I think it's relative to the price we're charging for games is you start to look at, okay, it costs us so much to make this. And it's not like, you're not necessarily multiplying the number of people buying the game by the same number. Now you, there's definitely a bigger audience now, right? Like obviously there are more copies shipping and stuff like that. And so like that helps like accommodate for to some extent, but it just seems like that's a big problem for AAA in general to try and keep up that pace because production budgets seem to go up much faster than the amount of like sales are making on most of them. Obviously there's exceptions, right? There's games that just come out and do gangbusters, but I feel like those are like the number of games doing that is smaller. Uh, I mean, I don't have numbers to necessarily back that up, but that's just seems like to be the case to some extent. And I feel like it's, there's also the secondary problem of like, if they can't raise the retail prices, you know, they're going to go for more free to play type tactics and pressure. So like the example I like to use is uh, Mortal Kombat one, right? The one I just used of like, yeah, it was at $70. But the thing that's like not being considered there is, and it is in the reviews. If you read some of the, the reviews, especially like steam and stuff like that, besides complaining about the bad PC ports that we get now for all these console games to save money, but also like the 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 amount of stuff they started sticking into it compared to Mortal Kombat 11, all these gotchas now, like they really changed the monetization around to be a bit more aggressive and a bit more like trying to get people to spend more money. Like, I mean, obviously that's the goal of a business, right? Get people to spend more money, but it's starting to bleed into the stuff that people who are buying premium games up front hate because they start quoting, hey, I spent, you know, 60, 70 bucks for this and I'm having to spend all this on top. I see that frequently in the Diablo 4 discussions like that's becoming i wouldn't say like a boiling point yet where people are gonna like throw their hands up and quit playing but it's causing a lot of dissatisfaction that's like really reflecting on the game developers in terms of just like people just not being happy with the way publishers are like acting towards the consumers and it's kind of one of those things where you can't really have your cake and eat it too for the consumers right like if you're not going to raise the amount you're going to spend what do you expect them to do? They either got to stop making the games or like find some other way to make money or just scale games way the hell back and sell them in pieces. It's, I don't know. It's just, and you talk like cyberpunk, right? Where they spent like that much money. They still spent years fixing it since. Like, so just take that 300 plus million, essentially they spent and add much more to it. Like just to like make up for the, the lost time, just to help sell the, the Phantom Liberty DLC, which I'm sure cost a fair bit as well. And they're probably technically undercharging for that too. So this just seems like, yeah, we're not to head yet, but like AAA games are going to struggle with this for a while. Uh, I think it's just, I mean, we're just going to see less AAA games. And the other part of it too, that kind of came out here in another, like, uh, the, another one of the court case email leaks from Phil Spencer that's kind of tied to this is him basically saying that like, uh, and this I believe this was an email and not like, you know, a memo or anything necessarily, but he, he pretty much was saying that straight up AAA games are kind of in a bad spot uh, because they used to have distribution advantage where they could be kind of like bully out the shelf space uh, at retail, right? If retail was the key and they could dominate that, they could make sure that they were getting those eyeballs, getting those sales, obviously a smaller demographic back then right but they could command like a bigger portion of it and then once things moved to digital especially with steam pushing that and then everyone else kind of joining in it became kind of a situation where they're like they don't really have that sort of dominance anymore outside of mindshare and it seems like it was was 
hinting at this a lot talking about IP that that's why we're seeing sequelitis in franchises now because if you can't dominate like physical distribution the only way you can guarantee people are interested in buying your game is it being a, a brand they recognize or if you're lucky like a game designer like Kirio Kojima or like you know Miyamoto or you know someone that they can recognize like some brand association with it they could go I'm already interested in this game because it's X and without that like they just kind of bleed in you know we've we've seen a lot of failures of, of new IP attempts uh, like well Anthem's a good example right but that had its own problems but it's just uh, Redfall even like had its own problems but it was just I don't know people are willing to give a little bit more benefit of the doubt sometimes when it's a when it's a known IP and I feel like this has been a big problem uh, and the other thing you mentioned uh, oh, just to say real quick for going over to you guys is around uh, subscription gaming models um, kind of being the fallback now and helping a, a bit because it kind of guarantees potentially some some profit there uh, without having to necessarily make all the upfront sales. And we are seeing a lot of publishers tried to go to that model. EA had their EA Play, uh, which has kind of been back and forth. They've had to make some deals with that. Ubisoft's been pushing their Ubisoft Plus. You mentioned that earlier about Ubisoft trying to like, like really thinking that the future is kind of in streaming. And so uh, I don't know if that's really like a good long-term solution, but it does seem like they're kind of trying to find their footing alongside all those funding issues. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Man, there's a lot to unpack in that. I'm not even really sure where to start. I mean, I guess maybe one place to start is just by acknowledging that like AAA gaming as like a bucket uh, or a basket, like not everything is equal. Like within that, like there are going to be so many games that just absolutely crush it and that people are going to going to love and they'll flock to. And then there are others that are going to underperform. And I think like having a mix is natural <laughs> like in any entertainment category you're gonna have like hits and misses um uh and of course like the the threshold is getting pushed higher um by those that can unlock more upside than ever before and they're pushing the barriers that everyone else has to keep up with and so for for them competing um they're they're kind of creating their own advantages and being able to do that, that puts others who cannot compete as much more at a disadvantage. And so that's just kind of the way markets work. Um, but that said, uh, you know, I think there is a bear case in that, that just like, yeah, maybe there should be fewer AAA shots. However you categorize AAA, if fewer of them are going to hit, especially like new IPs, new attempts than in the past. And that, that kind of sucks. Um, but on the other hand, maybe like the bull case in this is like, well, also, maybe the creation of games doesn't have to stay static. And one of the like exciting upcoming trends, you know, with the kind of the rise of AI oriented tooling and such is that actually maybe like games can in some ways be made more efficiently at a lower cost. And so you can do more with a similar budget. Um, uh, and I think that there is some merit to that, although we'll have to see how exactly it shakes out um, in different places. But um yeah, uh, part of this too, like, I think it's the market and Phil Spencer, he's coming from his own point of view, right? Where he's like, well, you're at a disadvantage. Uh, and, you know, one way that you can get a potential advantage is to work with us. And that's not exactly what he's saying, like in these quotes, but, um, you know, there still is like some some truth to that, that that he's he's getting at. Um, and I just don't think that's going to work super well for AAA because AAA is all about like, unlocking as much upside as you can 
to get to get that that profit margin uh, as wide as you can on the games that do hit, so you can fund everything else. And the problem with subscription is that it caps your upside for for these big publishers, and so that's not actually a, a great fit for that. So so I don't know. I think um, if if there is any like narrative around here, it's probably overset a bit. The market will adapt. There's going to be awesome winners. Of course, some people are going to flop. People are going to continue taking shots. The market will change. Business models will change, and that's all all normal. But games are going to continue getting better, and people are going to continue to spend a lot of money on the best games. Um, so that's my 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 view on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in general, um, you know, we've just seen the removal of like intermediaries from a lot of different, you know, markets. Like, you know, in terms of banking, blockchain has to some extent displaced some of the financial intermediaries. The rise of e-commerce platforms like, you know, Amazon and Walmart e-commerce has kind of displace the need for suppliers to have a lot of bargaining power. Um, and then in terms of publishers, like, you know, I agree that it's happening gradually, but that's only because of these acquisitions. Like, I don't think it would have happened organically that publishers um, importance would have been diminished so much, but insofar as Xbox games pass and PS plus um, and even Apple arcade, you know, continue to grow um you know, it is going to become a lot more about relationships with the developers rather than necessarily publishers. Now, publishers will always be needed, especially for indie games. Like if you're an indie studio with a really small budget, you do need someone to pound the table for you to give you shelf space, even on these digital distribution platforms like Steam. Like it's really hard to just do it yourself if you're a team of like eight people and your competencies are in development and design. Um and yeah, to Aaron's point, I also think it is somewhat idealistic. Um, you know, the reason it came out during this court case, like the only reason it's relevant is because of Phil Spencer's dream to have everyone flock to Xbox Games Pass. Like if it was just a comment about the industry, it would have had no relevance in the FTC's case. But, you know, clearly they saw it as relevant due to perceived uh, monopolistic comments. The the last thing I'll I'll say on this, um, I, I guess in the comment, it's sort of putting into question the value of publishers. Um, and as Mario was saying, like, well, one of the value of publishers historically was, um, you know, providing working with all the outlets to provide shelf space and such. And that isn't as true as needle moving as it used to be. But like the value of publishers, <laughs> first and foremost, for for development teams is funding. Um, and so maybe what happens here is just that like the negotiation leverage shifts a little bit. Um, but publishers are still super important as like financers. Um, and of course, you know, you could say that like, well, again, Xbox, <laughs> you know, looking at themselves to come like, ah, oh, you don't have to always work with publishers. You could just work with us. And even though that's basically just saying we're, we'll publish it instead, uh, which actually like it doesn't make a single difference other than it might, again, in a certain model cap your upside <laughs> in some kind of way. I don't actually think this is like these comments really change much of anything at all. Um, teams still need still need funding. Maybe with how it changes, like how teams have gone about funding, um, it changes, especially with venture funding, uh, what it is now and that like bypassing publishers in some ways, or even others like Epic um, coming in with their own like publishing models that they're testing that are much more developer friendly. Um, so you, you could see tables turn a little bit. But yeah, a lot of this commentary, 
Um, I don't think it's like defining the future in some radically different different way at all. I guess the the thing that, that I'm thinking might happen is we we've had a history over time. It's not like a new thing of AAA's like acquiring smaller developers and then adding them as studios or whatever. And maybe that shifts a little bit, but it seems like that could be the way that they just look at new IP as like, hey, we're going to publish our known franchises because we we own them, we shepherd them, we have the money to keep them up to player expectations potentially. Uh, but new IPs, we're going to take lower risks with smaller stuff like Fox Searchlight kind of mentality, right? Where they're just going to like, you know, hey, we have our kind of indie sort of label or we just do it as part of like our, whatever we're trying to do for smaller stuff because it's it's going to be lower cost for them in general, less risky. But they could also pick up ones that they're already seeing some success with, right? Where there's already a huge amount of interest. Like, I, like you know, remember when, when uh, Kickstarter was like, I was like, yeah, no, I don't need publishers anymore. So I've got Kickstarter. And I feel like it turned into, well, I'm going to use Kickstarter to prove out the interest in my game. And then a publisher will come along and be like, oh, I see your game's interesting. <laughs> so I feel like we kind of, we get that dynamic shift, right? Where it just the power for new IPs goes over to those. And also to, to be clear as well, like Phil Spencer was saying like, this was fine as well. Like this was kind of normal in the industry. He wasn't like being a chicken little kind of thing, or it was like, this is just like actually probably a good thing that triple A's need to kind of pare down. The one part I am a little concerned about is like, so it, let's say we take the parallel of movies, which are in a kind of similar situation in a lot of ways, right? Where they're just kind of like uh, movie theaters aren't doing so great. Uh, they're kind of really relying on heavy franchising, to try and pull everything. But some of the downside of that we're starting to see, especially on the Disney side of things with burnout on these. So some of these franchises that they're kind of relying on can really burn people out. I remember Activision basically doing that with Rock Band, for example, because they will take certain games and just franchise them to death. Uh, Obviously Call of Duty somehow manages to survive that, but there is definitely like a fatigue that could come from over relying on these. So I do hope this just means that they diversify better amongst indie studios or double A's, stuff like that. There's some money out there. And, and to your point, Aaron, I do think like publishers obviously can help with marketing and all kinds of expertise that indies just don't have that like absolutely like they don't just have to be purse strings. They could definitely bring a lot of things. Like when people look at like VCs is more than just a money bag where they bring experience or knowledge or network connections. Like there's a lot that can be brought there. Not always relevant, but definitely like some potential there. But unfortunately one of uh, a bigger publishers had to make some cutbacks Epic, the one who also got off some court cases recently and I think is trying to get back into some potentially. Yeah, so um, really unfortunate time, obviously, for the gaming industry from a hiring perspective. And Epic is kind of just, you know, rubbing salt on the wound with their layoffs, um, terminating 830 people, about 16% of the workforce, and making some divestitures of some acquisitions they made over the last few years. Um, They're divesting uh, Bandcamp, um, the music storefront that kind of competes with Beatport and other um, music marketplaces, um, which honestly just never made a lot of sense for me, um, like what they're doing with that asset. Um, I guess it was part of their broader vision of having music uh, in the metaverse, but it didn't seem like you had to hire, acquire an entire store to do that. Um, and then Super Awesome, which is uh, a company focused on creating safe online experiences for kids. I actually think they'll be able to fetch uh, quite a bit for that um, for reasons, you know, we've spoken about a lot in um, the digest, you know, these safe experiences for kids are becoming super important and there's tons of money being poured into um, ensuring like a non-toxic environment um, for, you know, children and young and and teens. Um, Those cuts are going to result in about 250 departures. Uh, the other 600 departures 
um, are mostly focused outside of core development, um, according to Tim Sweeney. But that does mean that there are a lot of people being laid off from core development teams, which include, you know, Fortnite, um, Epic Game Store, and notably uh, Unreal Engine. Um, and for me, it just seems kind of curious because, um, you know, Unity has messed up in such a grand way. It now almost seems like the time for Epic to be doubling down and like increasing investment in Unreal Engine, uh, especially the engine since the engine just came out with its 5.3 release, which is like, you know, lauded everywhere. You know, why not, you know, continue to spend money, refine the engine and win market share from from Unity? Um but it does not seem like that is the case. They are interested in ensuring a profitability. Um, people have also been saying Epic is going to go public for like three three years now. I'm wondering if these cost-cutting efforts are um, aimed at um, an IPO as soon as this year. The IPO market um, so far has been pretty good. You know, you've seen the IPO of ARM, for example, um, you know, went, went as well as it could have. Um but yeah, it's uh, it's a tough time for the industry. Um, luckily, those Terminator are going to be getting six months severance and insurance benefits, which is you know pretty generous. Um, and I just hope uh, they're all able to find uh, employment as the industry stabilizes. Yeah, I don't really have much to to add other than it sucks, <laughs> and, and I feel bad for everyone who got laid off. Um, obviously, as a private company, we don't really know much of Epic's inner workings from a financial perspective. Um, but, uh, I guess maybe it makes sense that they're feeling a lot of the similar pressures as others in the industry from a profitability lens, um, and are looking to reset, especially as Mario said, if they're looking to go, to go public, the, the divestment angle of this, um, is interesting. Um, and I, you know, wasn't really expecting Epic to have a couple spinoffs, um, this year, but if anything, it kind of shows maybe they're kind of focusing into core areas where they have advantages and kind of view more as their their future and focus is is good. Um, so yeah, I don't really have much to add about this. Um, curious to learn more about Epic over time, especially if they do think about going going public and what this business really really looks like. But yeah, tough day. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope the case is that they aren't necessarily like laying off people short profitability, but more short focus where they're like, you know, hey, we've we've gotten a lot of stuff going and this this band cap thing isn't really doing what we need to do. And we have a lot of stuff we need to focus on to maintain market lead right now and really like capitalize on Unity's goof, capitalize on uh, UEFN, all the stuff that they like are doing well and just double down on that, focus on that better. So, I mean, I hope that's the case. My big concern is like if they're going to like, do this more, I, I really hate to see harmonics in a bad, bad situation because that was one of the companies like, I mean, good for them, but I was also really sad to see them get acquired because uh, first off, it meant shutting down a lot of games uh, like uh, drop mix, which I own was like a physical one. Like that, that got pulled off the stores and lack of support. And now people like treating it like this thing that's hard to hunt down now. And it's like only because harmonics is gone, like basically. And if they're starting to get rid of music stuff, like I just hope they're not on uh, on the chopping block or if they are that like it's in a way that actually benefits them because uh, you hate to see like companies get acquired and then just kind of disassembled uh, essentially like because there's really talented people. They're doing really innovative stuff uh, that I would love to just see go to Fortnite. And I also hope this isn't just a case of like Fortnite starting to just do worse, you know, because it's maybe past its heyday and then uh, people just be like, well, we were making less money now. We can't start throwing just tons and tons of money at these side ideas. But we'll see. I do hope it doesn't go public, though, to be honest, because I like the way 
you know, Tim Sweeney and stuff runs the company. And I would hate to see it be a bunch of shareholders that might not run it so well um, because he's been kind of one of the heroes in a way, at least PR wise, uh, perceptively around just gaming in general. Like it seemed like he's been doing like a lot of good stuff and I would hate to see that change. But yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. the public thing, you know, in February 2021, Epic hired a investor relations specialist. And the only reason you do that is to go public. But like two and a half years later, nothing has happened. I'm wondering if that person is still even working there, uh, honestly. Um, but I, uh, I echo your sentiment on uh, harmonics. Like, you know, it's been, what, eight years since a Rock Band game? Like, I would have loved to see Rock Band 5, like, be virtual or something. Like, you put a VR headset on and, you know, you jam out in the metaverse. Um, but I guess, you know, that's probably not going to happen given this news. Um, yeah, it's just from a gamer's perspective, it's sad to see, like, Guitar Hero and Rock Band kind of fall by the wayside as people don't want bulky peripherals anymore. You know, it's become a very lean uh, industry in terms of the hardware side. Yeah, I mean, they also had other great games that were like before the Rock Band stuff that they did, uh, like Amplitude and Frequency and stuff, fantastic early innovative music games. Their last game, the DJing game as well, didn't require any peripherals of any kind. It was like, I don't think it did as well as they hoped. And maybe that was part of the reason why they were kind of like, accepting of the acquisition but uh yeah i would very very innovative people uh sometimes are rare in this industry in terms of like successfully doing it multiple times so either way hope they end up doing something good and and maybe the case with the investor relations thing they they looked at the numbers and everything and just like nah not worth it right now and so maybe they just backed off on it for now we'll see but uh i mean on kind of the same note as harmonics and stuff like that we just wanted to take some time to kind of do some high level stuff here and uh dig into some hidden gems and uh starting with also some winners and losers uh, just people that are that are doing it or not doing it so well in the market. Yeah, uh, so we'll see we'll see where this segment goes. Uh, really, it's just a light news week, and so we were looking for things to talk about. Um, but one of the things that I thought would be interesting just to kind of take a pause on and reflect back is just looking at some of like the top winners and losers of the year from a market standpoint. Um, so Mario maintains for Novik a really great um, uh, Airtable database of all of the the games industry companies worldwide that have a larger than $500 million uh, market cap. So all of the the larger games, public companies. Um, And, you know, many of them are the companies we all know. Some of them are, you know, others we don't really talk about as much, but um, the, the air table, which shows up every week in Novik digest in our top um, movers segment, which everyone should, should check out if they're interested in seeing it. Um, um, it. It tracks the performance long-term and short-term performance and everything in between. And so I thought it'd be interesting today to just kind of look at like, well, what are like the top three to five like winners and losers for the year? And is there anything like surprising in there? And so maybe we can just start on like the winner front um, and uh, get your guys' thoughts on on any of this. And so the top winners year to date um, are international game systems, Rovio and Applovin. Um, so, you know, who would have thought that, that that list would be be the list of 2023's biggest games industry um, winners? Rovio is simple. They got they got acquired. Right. So like big premium boost out of nowhere. But for Applovin um, and which was the biggest winner, it's it's more than doubled um, year to date. And then international game systems being like the other two winners, like. Probably a lot of people didn't even recognize what that is. So just very quickly uh, on a couple of these, then I want to get your thoughts. So first of all, Applovin, 
you know, this is one of those companies, I think the market just hasn't even like known how to make sense of it because it's been been hit by ATT. Uh, it's Unity and Iron Source merged. Where does that leave AppLovin? AppLovin kind of had a weird strategy of both ad tech and it's like apps, games, business that it's been making divestments from and that's been shrinking. And people have just been wondering like, what really is the future of like the ad tech side of the business? Like, where are they taking it? What are they they building? Um, uh, I guess the good news is that like, even though the app business this year has like kind of continued to whittle away and again, they've been like divesting pieces of it and, it, and it's profitable. Uh, but the, the ad tech business, it really kind of, it's been like a U-curve. Um, and so it looked pretty bad for a while, which probably explained why the stock got crushed. But, you know, it started to like show signs of growth again. And so people are like, oh, maybe this isn't as bad as what we think. It's not like the business is 150% better. It's just, it's just, wow, this isn't absolutely god awful terrible, um, like, you know, as much as people thought. So maybe not even like the biggest winner from like a business standpoint, as much as a winner from a, wow, this isn't as bad as we once thought standpoint. Um, so, so that's app loving. Um, and then quickly on international game systems, I, I had to even look up what the heck this company was. Um, uh, what they did is like, I feel like I recognize the name, but it's a Taiwan based company. Um, mainly they, they make online games and arcade games um, for, for the Asian region. And, uh, at first, I was like, I don't, I don't even fully understand why this company is is doing so well uh, because COVID, a lot of their arcade games that they sold to China in particular, like that got hit. But I guess they're moving past that. But then I zoomed out and I'm like, this company has like 10x in the past five years, <laughs> and no one even knows what what it is. Um, and it, on one hand, it's understandable because I was looking on the investor relations page, and half of everything you download is in Chinese, I guess. So I'm like, well, that's that's challenging. Um, but anyways, that was the other big, big winner. And I wish I had more insights into them other than them just being put on my radar, maybe embarrassingly for the first time after they've done so well. But those are 2023's biggest winners. Any thoughts or reflections on that? Yeah, so uh, I had to unashamedly Google what they do as well, despite maintaining <laughs> this table. Um, I got them confused for international game technology, which is a slot machine manufacturer, like a, a really big one, actually a huge company. Um, no, but what these guys do is that they create arcade cabinets um, almost exclusively off of licensed uh, IP or partnerships with, um, you know, these uh, these developers. And, uh, you know, one of their cabinets, for example, is like Asphalt, which I didn't even know is an arcade cabinet, but that's like the popular, uh, you know, uh, iOS and Google Play game that I'm sure everyone's played at one point. Um, apparently on its ninth iteration, which is really cool. But these guys are like extremely profitable, you know, for a company that produces arcade hardware, like their margins, like their EBIT margins are like over 50%, um, which is just incredible. And they're doing like 400 million in revenue a year, 200 million in EBIT. Um, and despite 10 xing their earnings multiple is still only like 16 X. So yeah, they're just, they're just crushing it. Um, and I think what they've benefited from is the, the rise of some of these arcade centers. Um, you know, Bandai Namco, for example, is doubling down on, um, their, uh, arcade segment. Um, you have the rise of like round one, for example, in the West. Um, so yeah, they're just, they're just doing really well in riding this, uh, this tailwind. Um, I don't have much to add on AppLovin. I think the industry is just rebounding from last year, which was, you know, just a confluence of things. 
super weak macro environment, um, post IDFA environment where uh, mobile advertising was just getting crushed, and then questionable decisions to acquire you know Unity in a stock swap deal that would see John Ricciatello as a CEO. So they were saying like like we're gonna, like we want to merge, but after the merger. Um, your your guy's CEO is going to be in charge. So it was just kind of weird, but I, I think a lot of that risk has now been priced out um, and they're just rebounding from what was a terrible 2022. The stock was down like 80% or something. Um, and then on Rovio, you know, uh, in January, they were uh, in talks to merge with uh, Playtica. Um, those talks fell apart. The stock never cratered really because people realized that something was afoot. This company is going to get acquired. And then, you know, a month or so later, Sega comes out uh, makes a $770 million uh, offer, which is like 60% premium to when before the deal talks were even announced. And then a further 20% premium to like after the Playtica um, talks were ongoing. So um, yeah, like that's the reason why why, why they've done well. And I suspect uh, next year when we have this discussion, um, a lot of the top winners as well will be ones that uh, have gotten acquired, just given the consolidation going on in the industry. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but anyways, I'm, all, I'm even curious to check this out in three months and see what changes, because I don't even know if I have like the highest confidence that like this top three will stay the top three. I bet one or two um, change places. But let's quickly move to the the loser side. And so the three biggest losers on our list um, are Kakao, Embracer and NCSoft. And, you know, we've kind of beaten the Embracer horse to death. Um, you know, over the past many months. So maybe we don't need to spend as much time on on that one. That's just the growth by acquisition strategy that fell apart and poor capital allocation. Um, Kakao also like isn't really a games company. Like they have a big gaming component of their business, which is why we include them. But like for those who don't know, Kakao is basically like the dominant messaging app in um, South Korea. And um like 90% of the country uses it and they've just kind of taken that foothold to expand into other areas. Um, gaming, comics, music, ride sharing, um, you name it. And this, uh, that strategy, um, you know, was really exciting and was, you know, at peak interest, really at peak COVID, um, right. Where everyone's like online more leveraging all of these services more. And they just haven't been able to really find their footing, um, since a lot of that pullback, um, began and of course, you know, mobile gaming being a challenging environment too from the from the game side. Um, but yeah, now that company is just kind of doing weird stuff. Their the revenue is eking up, but like every quarter lately, their profits are going down. They just bought like a K-pop <laughs> group that's trying to fuel um, international expansion. They're also investing heavily in AI. So I don't even I don't I don't even know. Like this isn't even really like a true gaming story, but it's one of the games industry's biggest winners if you want to view it from that lens. Um, but the other company is NCSoft, which is also a South Korean company. Um, sad year for these South Korean companies on on our big losers list. Um, but this is like much more of a clear um, gaming story. And NCSoft has had an amazing 25-year run. It's just that lately they've had a bit of a blip. Um, and this is a company that focuses, of course, on mainly MMORPGs like the Lineage and Guild Wars franchises. Um, and it doesn't take rocket science to figure out why this company is down a lot. You look at the last quarter, um, their sales are down about 30%. Operating profits are down a lot too. Um, this is because the game Lineage W, which this time last year was like their largest mobile game 
um, uh, and represented a majority of mobile sales. And this is, you know, like very much like a mobile that this company has mobile games and, um, you know, console or uh, I guess more PC games really with MMORPGs, but you know, mobile is a, a big part of the business and the biggest game, uh, of that, uh, you know, it has, seen its sales fall over half um, from last year, which is just dragged the entire company down. And that's just a tough place to be in. I'm not I'm not an expert on Lineage W to tell you exactly why or how to turn that thing around. But um, that's why it's it's fallen so much. And NCSoft just management hasn't been able to figure it out yet. They've had to do layoffs. And so a much clearer, sad, near-term gaming story. But again, the long-term trajectory of this business has been awesome. And I wouldn't necessarily project what's going out right now you know, into like a long-term view, but uh, a bit of a reset for NCSoft. But anyways, those are the the three losers. Any reflections on that, Mario or Devin? Um, yeah, I mean, we've beaten Embracer to death. Like my one sentence comment there is their acquisition strategy during a zero interest rate environment has backfired. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. And then uh, <laughs> in yep. terms of uh, cacao, you know, they just, they're more than games, obviously. They have this internet business, but from the game, gaming perspective, you know, they publish Black Desert Online, which is like this huge um, MMO, um, mainly catering um, to Korean audiences. And they handed back the publishing rights to the developer Pearl Abyss in 2021. So they lost that revenue stream. They uh, publish uh, PUBG um, in... Uh, in uh, South Korea uh, and PUBG has obviously declined in popularity, um, which is evidenced in Crafton's performance as well, which has not been great. It's kind of all these South Korean companies have been riding the tailwind of Crafton, which is like, you know, the biggest video game company in the country. Um, and uh, yeah. And then in terms of NCSoft, um, Guild Wars 2 has now been out for 11 years. Um, I think they recently changed the strategy for expansion packs, they used to release them like every few years at like, you know, a higher price point. It's just struggled as the game has aged and MMOs have kind of waned in popularity. And now they're switching to a more like frequent release strategy with lower cost DLCs. Um, so, you know, they're just struggling there. And then regarding lineage, I know um, that franchise was supposed to um, debut in the West, but since lineage W was launched, they just haven't had the traction to be able to release it outside of um, Asia. So, yeah, just uh, not a not a fun time for them. <clears throat> There's a couple of things I picked up while I was in South Korea that I think are kind of relevant. Uh, uh, NCSoft and, and the whole thing with Lineage. Uh, one of the things I found when talking to a lot of the game developers and stuff like that there is, is South Korea can be like very trend driven where they'll like play something for a while as like a whole in the country and then like move on to another game. Like everyone kind of does. It's like this, this kind of move from game. And like, I was even asking them, like, how are you guys surviving as a game company when like, you just have to move from game to game and just like hope that your game's one of the next ones. And like, you're talking about two old franchises, then lineage and, and guild wars. And if guild wars isn't relevant in the West anymore, like it used to be like, that's a big part of the audience loss. Right. And then if lineage can make the journey to the West as well, then it's really dependent on South Korea. And with the fad driven kind of nature, like, it sounds like it did. It hit really well at first, right? But then died off really quick too. And it sounds like it just trouble sustaining, especially with so many MMORPGs in South Korea. Like that's a very competitive market, like in general. Like, and if something else just comes along, takes everyone's attention, especially an MMO, like requires a lot of player base. Like 
if they just move over, like the game's just dead. And so it's interesting. And it's also interesting that they kind of let uh, Pearl Abisco, like I, I, I remember seeing Black Desert doing pretty well. And I think they just uh, are releasing another, I don't know if it's an expansion or another game kind of in the series, uh, either like relatively soon, I think I saw. Uh, so they seem to be doing okay as a company. Uh, it's kind of a bummer that they don't have that revenue stream anymore. And the other thing I picked up related to Kakao that I thought was kind of funny is uh, you you can't do Google Maps down there really for the most part, like for walking directions or driving directions yeah. or anything. Like you have to do Kakao for it, and they are oddly not super English friendly. It's uh, it, so you have to kind of use it, and it was it was very difficult to use. But as I'm using the app, like they just have so many like in the Maps app alone, like just so many other social feeds and all these other things. Like they really are trying to be that kind of like everything sort of thing down there and you can kind of see it like and maybe like that's you know kind of waning a little bit where people are not as interested in kind of having the everything app i don't know tell elon i guess as well but uh i just i don't know i thought it was kind of interesting seeing like what they were trying to do there uh and it kind of maybe just not being as interesting to the audiences out there anymore and this could be all temporary stuff but just a couple things i thought were interesting from the the time in korea blockchain week yeah anyways i just find this this general topic um, interesting. Um, and I'll, one hill I will die on is that the best game there is is the stock market. And so, so following this stuff um, is super, super fascinating to me. And of course, however you slice and dice this data too, you get you get different answers. Whether you're looking back over the past year, the past three years, or something. So it could be fun to revisit the segment from from different lenses um, from time to time. Uh, but uh, anyways, we're, we're kind of at the end. One thing I kind of want to quickly hit on, we mentioned uh, we'll talk about hidden gems um, and we can we can do this quickly, but maybe each of us can throw out one one hidden gem. It could be a company. It could be a game, could be a trend. Um, I'll go last. Uh, Mario, I'll throw this to you first. All right. So my com- my gem is a company uh, and that company is Devolver Digital. Um, these guys have just been absolutely crushed since um, IPOing um, on London Stock Exchange's secondary market a, a couple years ago. You know, at the time it was like the biggest IPO for that market. It was like, yeah, nine hundred fifty million dollars. Now their market cap is closer to like one hundred fifty million, so like just down significantly. And I think the reason is that they followed a very similar strategy to Embracer, albeit on a, on a much smaller scale during COVID. Um, well, they published Fall Guys, obviously, and made a lot of money from that. And then um, those rights were sold um, when Epic acquired the developer Mediatonic. And then they just needed to reorient the business. So they made a ton of acquisitions. They acquired Good Shepherd Entertainment, um, Nereal, Firefly Studios, um, Dodge Roll, um, who they published their game Enter the Gungeon, which was another success for them. Um, and... Yeah, it's just they've had trouble finding their footing. There's been tons of game delays. They've even went as far as creating like a game delay showcase, like like being proud of the game delays, many of them of which are going out into 2024. But their pipeline is actually looking pretty good. Um, and I think the company has just been like crushed to the point where people think they're going to go bankrupt. But like they have no debt on their balance sheet. Um they are releasing a ton of games next year. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm just, um, I guess, more optimistic on them than a lot of investors, I guess. Let's be honest. The real problem is lack of Hotline Miami 3. 
That's that's the yeah. big weakness right there. No, no huge, huge hit like that to really like uh, push things forward. But I love them as a company. Like they're the like just the most self-effacing humor. Like the de- de- delay thing as an example. If you ever want to see like just the weirdest, craziest press releases, they're like sort of E three kind of events that they do. Like they obviously there was no E three this year, so they did their other thing that was just. They're wacky, man. They're just crazy, crazy. You can find them on YouTube. I just, I don't know. They're a good time. I, I enjoy them as a company, though. They're kind of like this punk indie kind of feel, and I don't, I don't feel like we have enough of that in this industry. It feels like it's pretty much just them. Uh, they're like the closest thing to like maybe like a double A, uh, you know, really good solid indie publisher with like really good marketing and relations. So I hope they do really well. My, uh, my hidden gems. Everyone's gonna hate me for it because everyone hates cloud gaming, but. Uh, GeForce now, uh, you know, it mm-hmm. kind of like Stadia where it like kind of not, not so great at first, right? Like it was, you know, had a lot of problems, it was kind of weak, selection wasn't great. Uh, but, you know, I tried it again lately and I have to say it's come a long way uh, to the point where it's definitely competitive with xCloud in terms of performance and possibly even getting up there in terms of Stadia's level performance, which was uh, like by far the best in class. Uh, you know, I tried like, you know, really the games that latency really matters. I was playing like Battlefield 2042, just kind of running around trying to play crazy. Uh, I mean, Rainbow Six Siege is still the hard one to really kind of like do because it's so, so Twitch driven and tactical that it, like Peeker's advantage and stuff matters. So I don't know if it's like, I feel like that's kind of the litmus test and like probably formed maybe just slightly below Stadia. But the thing is like their selection is really good now to the point where like I was actually thinking about canceling my Game Pass because like selection wise, uh, the thing that I think is really cool about this is like, obviously it's like, yeah, you know, you have to buy the games, right? Like that was part of what people were confused about with Stadia, but this is your Steam library. And I think much in the same way, the Steam Deck was a huge like success in a lot of ways because it leveraged your existing library. I think this does the same kind of thing. Like it's, it's surprisingly good at that uh, because I went through, you know, I have a huge Steam library and had, I obviously doesn't have all of them, but it had a pretty good portion of games, both new and old, uh, just good selection around. It also had like, free-to-play games just as their own section that you can play like which is i, I wish i would have noticed at first because i was doing, going to try destiny 2 and i'm like oh i guess i could have picked it from that instead of just picking it from my steam library but it's just it's really nice in a lot of ways if you don't have a high-end gaming pc and there's a lot of people out there that you know would be interested in, in pc games that just don't have a high-end gaming pc and obviously you know that's where cloud gaming steps in but uh i just thought it was really nice and uh it, it it's just it works with a lot of stuff. And like you think about steam library is like, you can get a lot of games on sale, you know, a lot of cheap. And now they work across multiple platforms. You can play this thing on like a Chromebook. I don't know. I just thought it was really nice to see. And I think if, uh, if you, if it's been a while since you've checked it out, I was playing on the free tier and it was performing as well. Like I, I recommend people like give it another peek because I, I was very impressed with it and I will definitely be playing with it more. Uh, cause you know, I'm, I'm the one remaining champion of steam of, of uh, cloud gaming, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. Those are both those are both good answers that I wasn't expecting. Um, I'll close out. Mine mine is a company too, um, and it is Enad Global Seven or EG Seven for for short. And I have to give credit to um, a Novik reader and listener, I believe, um, in the hedge fund space for for pointing this out to me. I'd heard of the company, but I had never really given it, given it a moment of thought. Um, and it's a very small company. Um, it trades in Sweden and is I think if you convert it, it's only like a $200 million company, something like that. So it's very much a small cap. Um, but we all uh, we all know about you know the boom and bust of the growth by acquisition games companies. We've talked about Embracer dismantling. Stillfront has you know been going through a reset too. Um, and EG7 was another one of those companies uh, that was making acquisitions. And similarly, when the market changed, it got crushed too. 
Um, and now it's, you know, a very small business. But there are a few things that make this company different from the rest of the pack. Um, one is that its portfolio is largely online and MMO leaning, um, you know, which are, you know, s- sticky and cash flow uh, machines. They're just like better businesses than, you know, bloated studios or, you know, just really like a portfolio of, of like old mobile games. Um, and so, you know, this is games like DC Universe Online, EverQuest, Dungeons and Dragons Online, Magic the Gathering Online. I think they own like H1Z1. Um, it's just like a, a bunch of just like those kinds of games. So it's a really like unique portfolio. And I think they do some co-development work too. Um, second, old management left and new management is in. Um, and so the people that pursued the growth by acquisition strategy are no longer running the company. And instead, um, uh, this guy, new CEO, Ham, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's ex-private equity, ex-investment banking. And he was the CEO of Daybreak, uh, which was... EG7's largest acquisition. Um, and now he's running the the full show. And um, he, from what I've seen, he just shows like really strong, intuitive capital allocation sense. He's like redirected the company's strategy. He's made divestments to make them more focused on what they do best. Um, and I haven't really seen like great like capital allocator type CEOs in the games industry. And it kind of makes sense in a creative industry. But Maybe maybe he's about you know on that path to being like a good capital allocator. We'll see. Um, and lastly, you know, like most growth by acquisition companies, the financials went through a reset, but the team has a very clear growth plan for establishing its next era as a business. So they're actually targeting pretty swift growth um, over the next three years, like mid-teens revenue growth, and then like double that, if not more, for like profitability and EBITDA growth. But this is a company that's really freaking cheap because it's tucked away in Sweden and no one pays attention to it. Um, And so, uh, for example, fiscal 2026, they're projecting about 1 billion SEK, uh, which is the Swedish currency, in EBITDA. Their current market cap is 1.8 billion. And so if they get anywhere close to that, like this is a company that is probably going to multiply and I, I need to spend more time in it to see what I think about all the games and just all the the details of the business but if they if they do anything close to what they say they're gonna do holy crap this is a this is a hidden gem from an investment standpoint so shout out to Navic hedge fund friend don't know if you want to be named so I won't name you but um, uh, yeah anyways I was I always enjoy stumbling across these kinds of companies but I'll I'll close with that yeah. And I mean, Embracer is kind of in the same boat, like their enterprise value is like 45 billion krona right now, I think. Like it's literally like lower every single day, so I can't keep up. But they're projecting to do like uh, 10 this year. So like 4.5x um, earnings if they can get anywhere close to it. And like they've already had a quarter quarter's earnings released and reiterated that they're on track um, to meet that. So it's you know, with these businesses that are this cheap, like, I feel like it's a very um, bifurcated outcome tree. It's like either they fail and like go under, or they go up substantially because a company can't be valued at that valuation for a prolonged period of time, like without some catalyst or getting acquired. So yeah, I mean, I'm 
like as much as Embracer has screwed up, I'm also optimistic on them as well. Well, I'm not yet uh, on Embracer. I think these companies are pretty night and day. I think maybe if we check back with Embracer like a year or two from now after they've reset and if they have new leadership that has a completely different mentality, I'd kind of view them more similarly. But yeah, uh, what's interesting to me about EG7 is they used to be something like an Embracer, but they're really just like something completely different now, um, which is new and exciting but i don't know we'll see i'm excited yeah. to learn more i think uh we definitely gonna have to revisit the hidden gems like more frequently just because it's like there's a lot of these silent companies like in terms of like our perception you just like wow i didn't i didn't even think about that company uh like igt or i mean igs you mentioned earlier like just you know or you know when we we brought up keywords that one time just a lot of these companies are just off the radar of people's you know knowledge base i think would be uh, really worth pulling out uh, definitely, definitely good stuff. Uh, also, something I, I forgot to mention, just as one final note on the, the GeForce Now thing that I forgot to mention that I thought was really cool is support Steam Workshop because it's essentially using your Steam account. So, because uh, I tested it out with Tabletop Simulator and it just started just downloading huge mounds of mods that I had essentially in there. Uh, so only cloud service for games that supports mods. That was kind of neat. But anyways, moving on from there, uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, thank you for the panelists. Great, great conversation. Lots of cool topics. Uh, some better news than others, but uh, that's how it always goes. Uh, also, thank you to the listeners. I want to make sure everyone, again, remembers to send us feedback, podcast at novic.co, and also a shout out to friend of Novic, Eric Kress, for some feedback I got from him recently. Uh, and me misspeaking in a previous episode where I was talking about uh, the Rainbow Six servers going from uh, you know Azure to PlayFab, what I actually meant was PlayFab was what they were on, and they were going over to GameLift. Although it sounds like from what I did some reading afterwards that maybe it was only certain regions that switched, and other, it was kind of a mixed bag, but Anyways, thanks to Eric Crest for catching that, uh, my misspeaking there. Uh, so I appreciate that. But uh, again, thank you everyone for tuning in. And of course, you know, have a great weekend and we'll catch you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.